This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, episode 45, Matango. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherschel. And a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to listeners. The video for our YouTube episode this week was recorded yesterday on Christmas Eve, and the episode right now is being recorded on Christmas Day, and the episode will be released the day after Christmas. And for this Christmas episode, I have a very merry, dark movie for you. I'm excited to get to this one. It's the most Hitchcockian movie this whole season, and I, as a big fan of Hitchcock, I feel right at home with all of this material that's about this movie. It's a much more intimate film than the last movie that I covered, which was Gorath. This has much more human drama going on. I'm also going to cover such topics as Gilligan's Island... The Odyssey, Metropolis, and South Park. So you're in for a treat. This is going to be the best episode about this movie anybody's ever done. The related topics for this episode are westernization and globalization. Let's get moving. A short description of the film is next. It is the show's original format about how to describe this movie and give you a whole bunch of facts so that we can get those out of the way You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. The Matango are a poisonous, radioactively mutated, mind-altering, parasitic fungus. Once they infect a host, the host becomes a poisonous mushroom kaijin, which is a kaiju of human origin. The fungus drives the human insane, and the fungus grows all over them. Eventually, the human takes on mushroom-like physical qualities. The hive mind of the fungus is able to control the hosts in order to help capture more hosts. They grow at an accelerated pace when it rains. Their motivation is to spread and capture more human hosts. The origin for the name Matango is from the Japanese word Mamadango, which is the Japanese word for the fungus species Astreus hygrometricus. The parasitic properties of the mushroom are based on the parasitoidal cordyceps fungus, which infects and grows on its host, eventually killing it. Psychology professor Kenji Murai is a right-minded man who is concerned about protecting his fiancée, Akiko Soma, a timid and chaste average girl. Singer and temptress Mami Sekiguchi is the opposite of Akiko. She is the mistress to materialistic millionaire Masafumi Kasai. Itsuro Yoshida is a self-involved and unoriginal writer who thinks every current project is his greatest work. Naoyuki Sakuda is the grumpy skipper of the yacht who puts the rest of the cast in more danger than they should be. His shipmate assistant, Senzo Koyama, is an antagonistic individual who undermines Sakuda's influence as skipper. The human plot is the dominant plot of the movie, and there isn't a kaiju plot separate or otherwise in the same way that kaiju movies often have a separate kaiju plot. The Matango fungus is the problem. 
After the cast finds the research vessel with the fungus, Naoyuki and Kenji warn against eating the Matango mushrooms because the reports on the ship say they contain a nerve agent. They eat the remaining food on the research vessel, then they attempt to get enough food on the island to survive. This is difficult. As hope dwindles and food becomes more scarce, Naoyuki repairs the yacht and attempts to leave the island. He fails. Yoshida eats the mushrooms, and they drive him insane. Mami soon joins him, and Yoshida kills Senzo. They lure Kasai and then Akiko to come to the hive and eat the mushrooms. The problem is not actually solved. Kenji goes to save Akiko, but realizes he is too late. He escapes the island on the yacht, but he is infected with the fungus after being touched by the Matango Kaijin. The story is based on a 1907 short story called The Voice in the Night by English writer William H. Hodgson. It was developed into original story by Masami Fukushima, modified by Shinichi Hoshi, and then a screenplay was written by Ishiro Honda and Takeshi Shimura. The story is simple, with seven characters total, but with some subplot activity. The story focuses on the dramatic interactions between the characters as they struggle to survive. The budget of the film is unknown, but it is easy to tell that the film is well-produced. Director Ishiro Honda wanted to make the film dramatic and serious. Accordingly, the acting in the film is good. The set design is excellent, and the colors used are remarkable. The fungus is artistically well-designed and presented. Special effects were directed by Eiji Tsuburaya. The music by Sadao Beku is suspenseful, dreamy, and mysterious. The movie was filmed on the islands of Oshima and Hajijojima. It is filmed in Tohoscope with monaural sound. The tone of the film is decidedly dark and at the end horrific. Along with the heavy atmosphere, the film is serious and the acting is earnest. With skulking transitional matango and radioactive mutant laughing mushrooms, it is a fantasy film with a sci-fi horror flavor. The film is experimental because it's unconventional and significantly different. Although it's based on an older story that had significant influence on the genre, this is a morality fable as well as a horror film. It contains more human drama than other movies typically associated with Ishiro Honda, and it's darker than usual due to the subject matter. If you put all these differences together, there was an element of risk in making this film. Matango is an expansion of style because it has nothing about space travel, it's not a disaster film, and it's not a kaiju film in the traditional sense. It's personal and intimate, there's more focus on the suspense, and as a result, it goes in enough of a different direction. The movie's purpose was to be a dramatic fantasy horror film with special effects to enhance the story. The film was made for fans of horror, fantasy, sci-fi, mystery, and suspense. The film was released on August 11, 1963 in Japan. There are no figures for how well the film did at the box office. It is possible that the film was not particularly successful. It was released theatrically in the UK. However, it was the first of Honda's films to not be released theatrically in the US. It was released in the US on TV by American International Television in 1965 and was titled Attack of the Mushroom People. Overall, critics did not respond to the film well in the United States. It is a lesser-known film to non-tokusatsu and non-kaiju fans. It is known in the fan base, but due to its tone and lack of kaiju, it doesn't receive a lot of attention. It has a rating of 6.6 .6 on that movie database with 2,187 votes at the time of the recording of this episode. The film was almost banned in Japan because the fungus on the humans looked similar to the effects that atomic bombing survivors endured. Despite the movie's relative obscurity, the Matango Hive, Spores, and Kaijin appear in the 1988 video game Godzilla Monster of Monsters for Nintendo. 
the original 89-minute film was cut down to 88 minutes for the English-language version. Besides the title change, this version had a different line at the end, where Professor Mirai tells the observers outside his cell, I ate them, referring to the others left on the island. Then he shows the fungus that is growing on his face. The opening credit sequence was shortened, and an English-language dub was added. There are a number of forces at play. The characters are mostly morally corrupt, fun-seeking, modern people. When separated from the rest of humanity, they lose their humanity, embracing base instincts. The two exceptions are Kenji and Akiko. There is anti-nuclear sentiment expressed with how the Matango fungus has been altered and made more monstrous by exposure to radioactivity. The mysterious research vessel looks similar to the Lucky Dragon No. 5, too. The film cast mind-altering drugs negatively, concentrating on how they make people inhuman, insane, violent zombies. Honda said that the contemporary economic prosperity was making people materialistic and selfish. Honda was inspired by a news story about affluent Japanese teens who took their father's yacht out to sea having to be rescued. In a Japan where many were becoming rich and experiencing modern conveniences, the moral of the story is that Japan is losing its humanity, just like the characters in the movie. The sane man is believed to be insane because his story is so fantastical, but in fact it's no different than what's going on right outside his window. The theme is the antithesis of Honda's common brotherhood of man theme. It's a dystopian story of the breakdown of the brotherhood of man, giving in to temptation, abandoning morals and values, and surrendering to death by pleasure. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and analysis section. I watched this movie first about two years ago. It was the Japanese version. I was impressed by it. And it's one reason why I like these movies. The ending and the connection to the related topics for this episode were what had the biggest effect on me. But I do like this movie a lot, and you'll be able to tell. This is a movie I would have loved to have seen the first time when I was a teenager, maybe like 12 years old. It would have been pretty scary. It would have been interesting. And I do love dystopian-related stories and films a lot. This is a bit of a slow-burn film, though, but I don't mind that in the least. Some of the best movies are a slow burn. Attack of the Mushroom People is kind of a stupid title, though. It's not as bad as all those German titles you see on that movie database when you look at all these alternate titles, but it is pretty bad. Don't watch this expecting an actual Attack of the Mushroom People. I mean, that does happen, but it's not, you know, like World War Z only with Mushroom People. Some say that the middle is too drawn out and there's too much bickering between the characters. There is a point to that, though. The truth about their relationships comes out, and it divides them as they try to survive. I hear similar complaints that I did about Godzilla movies, too, where where it it took a a half hour to get started. You know, that kind of comment. But some of the best Godzilla movies are like that. But this movie is atmospheric, it's moody, it's dramatic, it's psychological horror that really requires a slow burn in a certain aspect. I do want to talk first about The Voice in the Night, which is a 1907 very short story, actually. It is a moderately Christian tale, and it's uh, this guy's new wife and how she is the first one to eat the mushrooms. It's sort of like the whole forbidden fruit sort of stuff from Genesis. 
There is also a chapter of John LeMay's book about tokusatsu called Terror of the Lost Tokusatsu Films. And his book mentions this movie, and it mentions the Hitchcock connection regarding uh, how The Voice in the Night was made into an episode of the show Suspicion, which I'll go into a little bit later. I watched this, and you are able to see this episode of Suspicion uh, on YouTube. I don't know if it's going to be available now when you're listening to this, but you can at least try. So it's this ship commander and his wife, and it's the two of them alone, and they're on this ship. And it's a British vessel, and his, his wife insists on coming with him on the journey. And then they encounter constant fog, doldrums. It's a really gross place, very horrid place. Then they get in a shipwreck, and then they find a derelict ship. And land is close by it, and she sees the fungus and the moss inside and all this weirdness. And you have to set it off, a lot of all this stuff on the ship. They have to get rid of it. And they have to come in contact with the plenty as they're doing it. And it makes you just feel so dirty when they're doing it. All this fungus keeps coming back. No ship logs, no medicine chest, no crew, and the lifeboats are still on the ship. Nobody's there. And they think perhaps a contagion could have been there. They explore more of the ship, and there's all of this fungus all over the place. She insists on coming with him everywhere, despite his concerns. They find the medicine chest and some carbolic acid to use, and they clean something to test it. But then the fungus comes right back again. And then they run. And then they grab their belongings, and they go ashore in a lifeboat, And the whole island is covered with this stuff, except a small patch on the beach with no fungus all over. There's nothing alive on the island at all besides the fungus, and there's no fish in the water even. Then she sees the fungus growing on his face, and it keeps coming back too, and there's no way to get rid of it. And he's about to signal a ship, and she actually stops him, saying they would contaminate others. And then she knows that she has it too, and she tells him that. They end up looking like gray sponges. But we don't actually see any mushroom people. And this is episode 124 of Suspicion, which ran from 1957 to 1958 on television. It was produced by Joan Harrison and Alfred Hitchcock. Joan Harrison wrote screenplays for a number of Hitchcock's films, including Jamaica Inn, Rebecca, Foreign Correspondent, Suspicion, and Saboteur. Alfred Hitchcock also had this story appear in a paperback anthology called Alfred Hitchcock Presents Stories They Wouldn't Let Me Do on TV. And this episode starred Barbara Rush, James Donald, Patrick Mackney, and James Coburn. Another connection to Hitchcock would be his 1944 film Lifeboat, which he did for Fox Studios, which is the only movie that he ever did for Fox. It was in this huge water tank with a wave machine and everything. It was a very daunting task to act in that movie, I must say. It looks grueling. An Allied ship is sunk by a German U-boat in the Atlantic during the war, and a group of survivors is in a lifeboat. Then the captain of the U-boat appears and swims to the lifeboat and jumps in. Then a huge amount of suspenseful drama occurs, and they have to decide whether to trust him. It's not unlike the shipwreck and the social breakdown that happens in this movie. I was surprised that some critics thought that Matango lagged in the middle with the bickering and the drama because Lifeboat had plenty of that, and it was great. I strongly encourage you to see that just as much as I recommend you seeing this movie. I independently made the connection between Matango and Lifeboat, and then I read the Steve Rifle and Gutterchevsky book on 
Honda, Isher Honda, and they made that connection too, which I was proud to see that. Speaking of other people who make movies, uh, Steven Soderbergh wanted to do a remake of Matango, and because he said he said he saw the movie when he was younger, and the movie scared the blank out of him. And he approached Toho with the idea, and they said no. And then Toho renewed the rights to the Hodgson story to make sure that the only remake would be their own. The way audiences and critics are now, I'm not sure how well a remake of this would work. It doesn't really fit neatly into a money-making category. The financial advisors at the movie studios may make many decisions, may not like it. Also, does a morality fable like this resonate much with people now? You know, this movie's talking about the corrupting power of money and things like this, and I'm not really sure how this would be received. Back then, American critics didn't really like it at that time, so I'm not sure what Soderbergh thought he was going to do, if he was going to modify this or not, but it's an interesting idea. The first draft of this story from Toho supposedly had Akira Kubo's face completely normal at the end, so he's not quarantined there, he's just in an insane asylum. And so instead, originally, he was just insane. And the fact that there's nothing on his face at the beginning of the movie, that kind of backs up that claim that that was the original idea. We begin the story in present-day, modernized, westernized, industrialized, globalized, Americanized, whatever, Tokyo. Neon lights, no visible stars in the sky, and then we see Akira Kubo's character, Professor Kenji Mirai. He's in his place of psychiatric confinement, so he's lonely and completely misunderstood, yet surrounded by millions of people. The city outside is really noisy and crowded, and I half expect the Grinch from the classic Grinch cartoon to be there saying all the noise, 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 noise. This is Akira Kubo's favorite film, by the way. And anyway, he's doing what might be his sort of Anthony Perkins in Psycho speech. In an insane world, any man who is sane must appear insane. After his little introduction, then we're taken to the yacht, the SS Affluenza. Or maybe it's the Affluenza Maru. And we get all this brassy orchestral music and more noise, westernized noise music, probably American. The next one to speak is Kumi Mizuno's character, Mami Sekiguchi. She says, we left everything behind. And well, that's not a good thing. They've lost their way before they've actually physically lost their way. Right away, Yoshida says, well, Tokyo's where your money and men are, so shouldn't you be, you maybe shouldn't be glad you're away from all that. So immediately we know that she's, as the old movies would say back then, that type of woman. The other woman is Akiko, and we immediately know what she's like because of how she reacts to Mommy. She disapproves. She's a virgin. She's timid. She has morals. She has no sea legs. And they sort of laugh at her virginity, too. It's like, haha, you virgin. And Mommy says, I'm the one who's normal, rather insistently. Probably not the case. Professor Mirai thinks that these people are potentially good friends to be around, and, well, he's going to eat his words later. Kumi Mizuno does her musical number, and I can't remember if this song is sung, this la-la-la song is, and, she, and I can't remember if people at G-Fest sing this musical number or not. They sing a number of them, but I don't know if this is the one. If not, it needs to be more prominent. I'm not going to sing it, but someone should. As popular as she is in the fandom. 
she's frequently looked at as one of the best actresses in the entire classic Toho Tokusatsu world. Meanwhile, the actual skipper and the ship's mate discuss how she's been on TV and how she's a mistress. She's a mistress of the owner of this yacht, Masafumi Kasai, who's played by Yoshio Tuchiya. And Kasai is our millionaire uh, slash celebrity. I have to do an aside right now about the relation between this movie and Gilligan's Island. <laughs> I independently made the connection when I saw this movie because of the similarities, and I'm not really a big Gilligan's Island fan, but it's hard to not notice. It's about a ship that gets shipwrecked in a storm. Check. They wreck on an uncharted island. Check. Two crew members, five passengers. Check. We have a skipper, a first mate, a millionaire, a movie star slash temptress, a simple girl, and a professor. That is six matched roles out of seven. Matanga was released in August 1963, and the pilot episode for Gilligan's Island was filmed in November of 1963. So that does put some time in between these two events. I have no idea if this movie is actually the inspiration for Gilligan's Island. It's probably not. The creators of the TV show would have had to think of a completely different version of this. You know, they saw this really dark story, and that's not exactly something that would come to mind upon seeing this movie. Is hey, let's make a cheerier version of this that's a comedy. Plus, this movie wasn't released in America until 1965 anyway. But what's funny is that the wholesome Marianne character, who's played by Dawn Wells, she received more attention and praise than the blonde bombshell character. And that's, that's effectively what happens in this movie, is the wholesome girl gets more attention than Mommy does. Hiroshi Koizumi's character, the skipper, says how when they have to deal with men on this journey, they're these men who are always boys, and they always will be boys, which is quite an indictment. And they live and play on their father's money. And then Mommy, she goes on about how expensive this yacht is and how Kasai is taking her to Europe and this and that. And Kasai starts comforting Akiko during the storm. And she's immediately annoyed by that. And in fact, so is Kenji because she's his fiance. The storm scene has some well done model work. The water looks just as good as the effects at the beginning of Mothra vs. Godzilla one year later, which I tied to Typhoon Vera, which was a very historic typhoon event there. They end up in an area of perpetual fog that surrounds this mysterious island. And well, that's more believable than Skull Island with its constant stationary hurricanes surrounding it, but yet having no effect on the island itself. They start in on each other pretty quickly once things go bad. Senzo, who's played by Kenji Sahara, says that women are a bad influence on the sailors. Once they enter the derelict ship, the movie becomes more of a psychological drama with a flavor of fantasy. The set design is impeccable. They find the same carbolic acid on the ship as was in The Voice in the Night short story. But they also find an actual Matango mushroom in this box, and that wasn't in the short story. The Matango even has its own logo on the side of the box in the little font. When they have their meeting about what to do, they decide we're not going to have any mushrooms because they have a nerve agent. So this mushroom slash fungus slash mold in this movie is based on the parasitoidal fungus that grows on arthropods. And they can change the behavior of the hosts that they infect. And cordyceps is the name. Parasitoids are a common element in horror movies. Uh, think about the xenomorph. 
The very idea of it is scary to think of. They not only feed off the host, but they kill the host in the process. Charles Darwin said that creatures of this type, like that wasp that lays eggs inside other insects so that the larvae eat and then kill the host, he said that these wasps were so cruel and horrible that a beneficent and omnipotent god could not have made such things. The whole part about discovering an abandoned ship and no crew to explain what happened has happened so many times now in science fiction and other genres. The flashback with Kumi Mizuno singing in the club is quite nice. I was intrigued by the meta-conversation that Yoshida, Sakura, and Kasai have about writing. Kasai tells Yoshida, who is writing, that his writing isn't original and it's someone else's work. Yoshida says there's no law against that. It's how literature was developed in the first place, right? It's a writing exercise. Every modern-day story stole its plot from something else that someone else wrote. And I thought, wait, isn't, isn't that true? I don't think that's true. I doubt that's true. It's funny because this movie was stolen, quote-unquote, from an English author's short story that Toho got the rights to, so it's kind of like a meta-commentary inside this flashback about the origins of the story. The part about the island being a graveyard of ships goes back to the Bermuda Triangle mythology, which a lot of that turned out to be embellished. There are plenty more dangerous areas of water in the world than the Bermuda Triangle, but it adds to the overall atmosphere of this movie, and well, it makes sense in this story. They think that this island is part of the group of the Ogasawara Islands, but they're unsure which one. Those islands extend quite a far a ways away from the main Japanese islands. Kenji and Kasai are the first ones to get a glimpse of one of the mushroom people, and they shoot at it. And then there's some mushroom debris on the ground from that gunshot wound. The set with all of that fungus is so nice looking. I feel like Henry Bumstead, who did a few Hitchcock movies, could have done all this set design. While he's stealing food, Kasai runs right into the monster. And IMDb actually credits him, this guy, as skulking transitional Matango, quote-unquote. In the next argumentative scene, where Koyama, played by Kenji Sahara, is antagonistic, it's easy to see the obvious tooth missing, and that is actually something he did. He had it pulled, instead of having the blackening put on it. That is not something that the pros in Hollywood would be advised to do. And you got to admire that level of commitment, even though we may not opt to do that ourselves, should we be in the same position. Yoshida, our writer, is the first one to consume the mushrooms. These mushrooms that they eat, and it ends up being rice pastry. And this is just a little bit of IMDb trivia, but they put sugar and other stuff on the rice pastry that Kumi Mizuno ate. And it looks like there's like something on the mushroom that Miki Yoshiro is eating too, later towards the end of the movie. Everyone is getting into it with each other at this point. Everybody's at each other's throats. And there's a well-acted scene between Sakuda, the skipper, played by Hiroshi Koizumi, and the millionaire Kasai, played by Yoshio Tsuchiya. And I think that's the best acting between the two of them, and it's some of the best acting in the entire movie. When things get more desperate as far as finding food, Koyama returns with food that he's found. But Yoshida comes back with nothing and says that he's full. Regarding parasitism and psychological effects, there is a nerve agent in the mushrooms. They infect the central nervous system and they change the behavior of the organism that it's attached to. 
It changes social behavior. Hint, hint. That's what happens in this movie. Toxins like this can flood your brain with dopamine, causing you to lose control. Also, it could lower dopamine levels, where you become so depressed and you lose motivation. Parasitism also has a common feature where the host climbs to a place most likely to be picked up by an organism higher up the food chain so that the, that, that parasite can be transmitted and continue the cycle. An example would be an infected ant climbing to the top of a blade of grass to increase the chance that a bird will pick it up and eat it. There's so many organisms like this, and there's so much material for horror and sci-fi stories, because this is such an an idea that humans just cannot get used to and really shouldn't. Koyama is in the next scene, and he's selling eggs to Kasai for a lot of money. And Yoshida makes the romantic move on Mami. And of course, he's on the mushrooms now. Koyama and Yoshida then get into a scuffle, and Mami then she brags to Akiko how they're fighting over me. That's probably one of the most Mami lines that she has. Then she goes to the makeup and starts doing the makeup, and that's even more nauseating. Then Yoshida really goes off and talks about how he's intoxicated, and he threatens to kill all of them. Now he's turning into this mass shooter, practically. He says he prefers Akiko to Mami as well. The skipper then runs off with all the food and takes the yacht alone to escape. Then we have the big scene with Yoshida and Mami trying to take over everything. And then Yoshida and Mami actually try to kidnap Akiko. Yoshida kills Koyama. In the scuffle after that, the others throw both Yoshida and Mami off the ship. The part with them finding all of Kasai's money on Koyama's body is a nice touch, too. It shows the corruption is everywhere. The last 20 minutes of the movie are amazing, and it's time for some special effects. The rain pours down, and the mushrooms multiply and grow, and we see more of this as we go along in the movie. The laughing is a totally awesome sound effect. Kasai isn't eating, and he's practically suicidal but has no gumption to do it. Then they leave, and then Mammy comes in, and she's wearing all these sexy clothes. She's the mushroom temptress now. She's like the siren from the Odyssey. And she says, do I look famished? No, in fact, the mushrooms made her sexier. It looks gross, she says, but they taste delicious. Instead of committing suicide, he chooses to die in a hedonistic way rather than starve and hang on to principle. Then there's the dancing scene when he starts eating the mushrooms, and that's really something. And it reminds me of Bridget Helm from Metropolis in the scene where she, as, as the robot and she's the woman corrupting all the men and everything with the dancing. This totally reminded me of that. But then Kasai sees Yoshida, who is already transforming, and it's on all the fungus is on his face. And then the Matango appear. And apparently inside the suit of at least one of these Matangos is Godzilla suit actor Haro Nakajima. This leaves Kenji and Akiko on the ship. It's just them. And now the ship has grown all of this fungus all over the place, and it's a major set design achievement, and it is so nasty. Kenji then sees the abandoned yacht coming back, and there's no one aboard. And it turns out that the skipper failed in trying to escape, and he's the one, He's at least he says, he's the one that got them all killed. Kenji and Akiko then run into some more transitioning Matango, and they're all trying to break into the ship, and that's the actual attack of the Mushroom People. They kidnap Akiko, and long story short, 
she's sucked into the mushroom eating collective. Then we have our lovely, horrific scene with the Matango all trying to get Akira Kubo. He really does an incredible job in all of these little fast, quick cuts with all the absolute sense of dread on his face. And that's probably the scariest moment in the whole movie. In our final scene, Kenji says, is he any different from the rest of Tokyo? They're becoming inhuman. He says the island with the mushrooms would have made him happier, actually. And it hits us at the end that when he makes this connection. And it's a connection to what? Materialism, commercialism, consumerism, selfishness, and lack of empathy. Westernized, globalized, Americanized, modernized, whatever word you want to use to describe it. Another way you could say it is Japan is becoming a low-trust country, even though it's historically been a high-trust country. Speaking of high-trust society and low-trust society and globalization and Americanization, that is going to lead us into the related topics, Westernization and globalization. That concludes part two. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, I'll be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. And for this episode, I chose Westernization and Globalization. I chose these topics because this film has a lot to do with what was going on at the time in Japan, which is the emergence of economic prosperity, which leads to affluence, which may lead to affluenza. Regarding the use of these terms, Westernization and Globalization, well, if you're in Japan, here's how it works. After the war, they were going through Westernization, Globalization, and Americanization. Now, if you're in Japan, all of those three things are essentially the same thing. Japan industrialized and then became more intensely westernized after the war. Before the war, Japan had already gotten a lot of the things the West was doing, lifestyle and other related things, and also industrialization. But it was only after the war that Japan was introduced to democracy and standards regarding human rights. Japan then excelled in these arenas. I think the movie is more about westernization, but westernization and globalization in Japan are all blurred. A larger part of the symbolism here is that when the Japanese are separated from Japan, they lose themselves. That implication could be a metaphorical and a symbolic one, not necessarily a literal one. This happens in a Lord of the Flies fashion. Dystopia is a warning about the Japanese people getting affluenza. The message is, don't become rich and then selfish and then spoiled and then become a jerk and then lose all of your morals and in the end, lose your humanity. Globalization accentuates economic differences, not just inside countries, but between groups of countries as well. Only some of the population really benefits from this kind of trade, and those who don't enjoy the benefits have little interest in maintaining the arrangement. There is a greater divide between the rich and the poor. The global class of the super-rich has never been bigger. As a result of economic distortions, nations have a responsibility to ameliorate these differences, lest those differences start having adverse effects. Globalization changes communities in good and bad ways at the same time. As we see playing out before our very eyes, the conflict between globalization and localization is fierce in places. Territoriality is blurred in globalization. Borders in some places become meaningless, yet nations still exist. The collapse 
of nations is going on before our eyes as well. Nations fail and fall into totalitarianism. Societies become regressive and backward. Cultural differences are blurred. Racial differences are changed. Globalization versus localization. Localization can have extreme downsides too. Societies become fragmented. States divide up or become balkanized. The act of 9-11 itself was against globalization. They attacked the World Trade Center in the name of localized extremism. Capitalism has globally made Earth a different place, as well as the current structure of world trade. Racial difficulties are exacerbated. As places become more diverse, movements appear to preserve ethnicities and traditional cultures, and that results in traditionalism. A result of mass migrations like the migration from Syria is that it can disrupt and create tensions that then play out in local politics. As the world becomes more modern, there is a growing rise in religious fundamentalism. It could be that religions are in their death throes and fundamentalism is a part of the equation when that happens. As the nation-state system dies, the result is also nationalism. As English becomes the new lingua franca, since the U.S. has, perhaps until recently, been the leader of the global financial capitalistic system and the leader in the financial world, America has experienced backlashes from time to time from other countries and other entities, sometimes non-state entities. Terrorism has been one of the worst results and has nationalism in other countries that don't benefit from globalization. America is resented not of individual Americans, sure there's that, but America is resented by some because of the ideas that America represents. Since the end of the war, the U.S. has been known as a bastion of free trade, free market economics, and of financial dominance. America's political landscape has changed as a result of globalization. Each of America's two political parties has a globalization wing and a localization wing. It's like there are two parties inside each one, each putting up their own candidates, as happened in 2016. Populism arises when nations fail to address, or wrongly address, problems related to and worsened by globalization. And as chaos worsens, then everyone becomes obsessed about keeping things the same way, whatever that means to them. So people become obsessed about order, or security, or protection, or traditions, or some weird fundamentalist aspect of religions who pledge to make life easy in exchange for living with, or maybe even living as, totalitarians. People become insular, obsessed with being exclusive. As people can travel so many places around the world so quickly, cities become globalized, fragmented, balkanized, and the rest of the population increases Cities become huge. People are connected and yet disconnected. The sense of community, the way people thought about it before, has completely changed. So people can be surrounded by millions of people, but there's no sense of community, particularly because the change is happening so fast. And what happens then is, possibly everyone could be ending up feeling alienated. As you're surrounded by different cultures, those differences between the cultures become more accentuated. Globalization undermines national loyalties. 
international business people, in a lot of ways, don't need their own country. They are in many ways above national loyalties. Their circumstances change their loyalties. When you have employees and factories in another country, you are concerned about where they are and your loyalty is to a corporation, not to even wherever that corporation may or may not be based. Japan seems to be doing really well overall as they have benefited hugely by globalization. I've spoken about Japan Inc., Japan Incorporated, and Japan's huge accumulation of soft power and cultural influence a lot on this podcast, even before the first episode was even released. Japan is the third biggest economy in the world, and considering its population, that is amazing. Imagine if Japan wasn't rebuilt and there was no flood of economic assistance and reorganization after the war. Japan, with no economic boom post-war, would have been a miserable place. Without globalization and neocolonialism, Japan would have no gross national cool, and it would not be the Pokemon hegemon. And Godzilla wouldn't be much of a phenomenon in America. 28.7 million people visited Japan in 2017. That is 22.6% of Japan's whole population. I don't think Japan doesn't like the attention and the money from all this. Japanese media, on the whole, would not be as big as they were today if it weren't for globalization. Heck, if it weren't for globalization, I probably would not have created this show because Japanese media would not be as big of a deal. If people weren't open to learning about other cultures and other nations and they would go about creating their own global culture, then there would be no replacement for insular nationalism. And here's a big word that you can't not mention in the analysis of globalization, tribalism. Another big term would be identity politics. Is tribalism ever going to disappear? Probably not. But the job we should do now is to figure out how to manage all of this and to keep people from turning into the cast of characters in Matango. It's a very challenging future that we live in, and it's not an easy task. It's funny to have this story relate to globalization, though. Although Kimura, or maybe Sekizawa, does this in Godzilla vs. Gigan too, because Japan is a poster child for how globalization did a pretty good job. Perhaps someone felt the need to do what they did in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, what they did with the symbolism with communism. This is six or seven years since that movie was made, there's a reason why people remember Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and partially was because it had something else going on, a lot like this does. It does sound a tad off, though, given how Japan has done so well. If everything went back to pure nation-states fending for themselves, then Japan would not be where it is today. Japan came late to the empire-building game, and that didn't go very well, but Japan certainly mastered the globalization game beyond anyone's wildest dreams. A lot of Japan's cars are made in the United States by Americans. Toyota has six manufacturing facilities in the U.S., one in Indiana, which is the home state of this podcast. Honda Motor Company has four facilities in the U.S. One of those is in Indiana. Nissan, three facilities. Subaru Corporation has one manufacturing facility in the U.S., and it's in Indiana as well. It runs in joint cooperation with Toyota. States in the U.S. send economic development delegations to Japan often, and the governors are often the ones who come personally on these trips. 
there is a lot of economic development being done between the U.S. and Japan, and so that's where things are in reality. But in this movie, localization is looked at as a preferred method of life because those who get lost in the madness of global capitalism and the great Japanese economic miracle are actually giving up their values, giving up their morality, giving up their culture. If this movie were made today and still made all these connections, this movie would be looked at as probably pretty conservative. Condemning rich Japanese people for selling out their morals or national identity or culture. Critics of the film may say that this morality can be tending to be a little bit preachy. How much Japanese food do Americans eat every day? How much American food do Japanese people eat every day? The food market globally is extremely interconnected. It's incredible. It's so big, it's hard to even imagine. I've never seen demonstrators enter a Japanese restaurant that I go to and tell me that I should be ashamed of myself for abandoning my traditional values. In fact, many Japanese are adopting more Western diets, meaning higher fat and higher calorie foods. There are three places that served as Cold War showcases of power and supremacy of globalized economics. West Berlin, Seoul, and Tokyo. Filled with neon lights, filled with economic activity, vibrant, energetic, rich, and most importantly, free. All three of them just outside the range of totalitarianism. All of them advertisements for what? Freedom, free market economics, and democracy, and what those things can do for you. To me, you can have it both ways. You should be able to reap the benefits of globalization and not lose your own culture unless you want to form a new culture. I go to a Japanese restaurant sometimes. It doesn't mean the world's going to end. When I was in Germany, I saw so many Italian restaurants you wouldn't believe. There are global tastes, that's why, and not everyone has to eat the same thing. What this movie is bringing to the Japanese people's attention, though, is that they need not lose their soul when opening up themselves to the rest of the world, making connections to outsiders. Don't leave everything behind like the, those people who were aboard the SS Affluenza. I don't look at Japan as a country that lost its way due to globalization. Japan's culture is shared by millions all over the world. Japan has so much cultural influence that we don't even notice it. We just take it for granted. What we would notice would be as if all of it was gone or if it ever went away. Recently, Japan and the European Union signed a trade pact, and it was ratified by both houses of the Japanese diet. There will be no more tariffs on 90% of the products traded between Japan and the EU. Japan is also one of the nations in the Trans-Pacific Trade Pact. European products will be less expensive in Japanese markets and vice versa. So, for instance, the Europeans get Japanese cars and the Japanese get European wine and cheese. And from the Trans-Pacific Pact, the Japanese get Australian and New Zealand wines. Had the United States joined the Pacific Trade Pact, Japanese products would be cheaper in the U.S. and American products would be cheaper in Japan. American cars would be less expensive for the Japanese market and vice versa. It's a great amount of business that American companies can gain in Japan, and the interdependence and growth are then achieved by both sides. Both economies grow. 
competition then goes up to make better products. However, what we have to avoid is a huge wage-cutting spree in order to make products cheaper, a race to the bottom, so to speak. Workers should be protected from this. The United States needs to industrialize more and have more manufacturing employees. Doing this will reduce the trade deficits that the U.S. is currently running. The U.S. and Japan are going to start bilateral trade talks soon, and the biggest subject will be auto tariffs and allowing the U.S. to be able to compete in the Japanese market and vice versa by lowering tariffs on both sides. Maybe before the negotiations start, we can have Kyoko Patterson from Shin Godzilla show up and say, just U.S. and Japan, win-win. Japan does favor larger trade agreements rather than just bilateral trade agreements, as evidenced by Japan going into these two big, huge trade pacts. Now the best part of the episode, how globalization ties into this movie. The ship with the fungus on it has Japanese, Western, and communist instruments and items on it. The people on it have no nationality. Now that made alarm bells go off in my head for sure. So why did they do that? Partially because they didn't want to point the finger in any specific direction. But, coincidentally, because consumerism and globalization has no nationality, that could be a reason, too. Globalization is its own entity. No allegiances, per se. But this ship is sinister. It could be a spy vessel. They were doing nuclear-related tests of the polluted waters, so maybe that radiation created the species of this Godzilla-powered mushroom. And that's really where this is going. Look around the room that you're in right now. Is anything in your room made in the U.S.? Is everything? I looked at my TV, for instance. Japanese company made in Mexico. Blu-ray player that I watched this movie on. Japanese company made in Malaysia. The monitor I'm looking at right now. Taiwanese company made in China. It's undeniable that it makes more sense to build some products in some places and other products in other places. Japan imports 60% of the food that it consumes. 90% of Japan's corn comes from America. No surprise there. So why the part about why the only way to survive is by eating the mushrooms? So what do the mushrooms represent? Loss of individuality. You become part of the doldrums. You lose your morals to the point that killing people leaves you with no remorse. And it makes you think about selfish instincts. And you're taken over by all of this. The mushrooms represent materialism. They represent hallucinogenic drugs. Is this story lamenting that Japan has changed this much and that Japan is in danger of losing itself and of losing its soul? This is implying it will be bad when Japan's only way to survive is to eat the mushrooms. We're now at a point where if Japan decided to cut itself off from the rest of the world, one can scarcely imagine what that would even look like. The level of interdependence between nations is so high that our lives would change so radically that it would be an entirely different world. Yoshida says how the skipper isn't in charge of the ship anymore, because they're on land now. He's challenging the authority 
of the skipper Sakura. I could relate this to globalization and how it challenges national authorities because of worldwide situations and circumstances. The countries have to deal with what? Forces outside their own control. In that well-acted scene with Hiroshi Koizumi and Yoshio Tsuchiya, the skipper tells the millionaire, presumably as a friend, but actually, you bought me. This can be related to criticisms of westernization and globalization. The idea that they weren't friends at any time, it was a financial agreement and arrangement all along. It's a betrayal of friendships, and it's selfish. And it is the whole issue of morality being corrupted by money. Now I'm going to talk about South Park. South Park had an episode on global warming slash climate change, and the way they described it was to have it in the context of industrial development, which globalization is obviously part of. In the end, the boys find out that it was Stan's grandfather who made a deal with a demonic entity to have industrial development. But on the flip side of that, that resulted in climate change. Stan's grandpa says that his generation wanted cars and ice cream, and they wanted things to be readily available. Of course, these products are metaphorical for all the products that resulted from industrialization. Industrialization led to what is called the Great Divergence. This was when the West jumped far ahead of the rest of the world in industrialization and increases in the quality of life. I believe Matango is not too far off from this moral fable that South Park did. The story in Matango is saying that Japan could have made a deal with the devil in exchange for growth and prosperity and increases in quality of life. In exchange, they gave up their independence and their morals and their souls. And somehow the one who points out all this is the one who is called crazy. And that is how this film expresses the Japanese national spirit. It's concerned about Japan. And this is a movie, like Shin Godzilla, that is made for the domestic audience of Japanese people. That's who this message was for. For economic figures of note, in 1963, economic growth in Japan was 8.47%. So that fits all right in with the Japanese economic miracle and what this movie is doing, which is criticizing the possible feedback that comes out of the Japanese economic miracle. This episode is dedicated to the acclaimed and brilliant producer Tomoyuki Tanaka. He produced this film, he created the Godzilla franchise, he produced more than 200 movies, including every Toho Kaiju movie and six Kurosawa movies, including Yojimbo, The Bad Sleep Well, and High and Low, which are three of my absolute favorites. The kaiju world could not possibly have been this good without Tomoyuki Tanaka. The next episode of this podcast will be 1963's Atragon. That film stars Jun Tazaki in perhaps his greatest role, and this is a fantastic, classic Toho tokusatsu film. I absolutely love it. I'd like to send a shout-out to our patron, Sean Stiff. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. He donated at the Kaiju Visionary level. 
Donating is worth it. It gives you the inside track to what is going on in the show, and you get to message with me personally. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please donate on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and this is KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time. <laughs>